Peplegmenendu exhes metanagnorismu e peripeteias e ampoin he metabasisestin. Welcome to uh, the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. What you just heard there was a small section of the Poetics by Aristotle. And today we're going to be talking about a book that's uh, not his Poetics, but a, uh, you could say a twin book to the Poetics, uh, the, uh, Aristotle's On Rhetoric. A theory of civic discourse, and uh, with me today again, I have Dr. Enos, uh, one who has had um, a very close and personal re- relationship with that book for a very long time since his undergrad years, indeed. Right? Yes, that's true. I think that uh, my interaction with Aristotle, and it was really an interaction, not just an education, began when I was just. Uh, beginning my uh, college education, and I was introduced not only to the study of rhetoric, but the first uh, idea expressed by my professor was that Aristotle's rhetoric was a landmark work. And uh, I hope today to show you not only why that had such a profound meaning for me and why it became a part of my life and my academic career for so long, but also why I think it's still important and relevant today as a very powerful theory to explain what we do, but also a helpful guide to improve and understand what we do when we try to gain the agreement, understanding, and persuasion uh, with others. And uh, if we were to take... uh Speaking honestly, this is perhaps maybe the most read and studied book in rhetorical studies uh, throughout throughout the last 200 years. I think that that's absolutely true. Some historians of rhetoric will say that before this sustained popularity of Aristotle's rhetoric in the West, Cicero held dominance. But I think it's very accurate to say that within the last 200 years, Aristotle's rhetoric um, is seen as the most important historical work on rhetoric, one that has that importance because, as I mentioned earlier, its relevance and uh, contributions for today. I think that uh, we can really begin to, to see Aristotle's rhetoric as one of the first efforts to really understand the co- the relationship between how we think, cognition, and how we express our ideas, not only within ourselves, but, but to another mind, to someone else, to try to gain that agreement and understanding. Um, and I think that is important for us to, uh, to recognize as we work on understanding the rhetoric. And uh, I'd say probably this is uh, a book that, uh, at, at at the time when it was written originally, it probably, it was, as he says, a response to 
Isocrates, and it was competing with a lot of other techniques, other arts of rhetoric that were written at the time. But this is, as far as we know, the only one, only major one that has endured, that has uh, been able to, that that we have today. And even the works of Cicero, um, I would say probably there's no other work that goes, that we have today, not that they weren't written, but that we have remaining that goes into so much detail on each of the branches of rhetoric, the, each of the forms of appeal, um, and their, the psychological basis, you could say, for these. Uh, it just goes into way much more depth than almost anything we have uh, from the classical world in, in, the, in rhetorical studies. I, yes, I think that uh, it's important for listeners to realize that that there was the study and practice of rhetoric before Aristotle, and that this took the form of teaching to improve one's ability to express themselves, that there were these handbooks or manuals, sometimes they're called techni, just as today we would have books that teach us how to speak, how to write, uh, but this work, as you said, David, is a work that we that has survived that is different than any of that because it does talk about an understanding of the processes that go on when we try to do those things. And that is a contribution that was not only unique, but insightful, very, very insightful. And uh, I just... Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> it's one of those books where every time you go to it, you discover new insights. So you get uh, like original insights because your mind has moved on to other topics meanwhile, and then those topics become illuminated by something that is, that is written in here. It's just uh, it's it's a a book that has a lot of material. It's inexhaustible, um, and it has things for psychology. It has things for political science. Um, it has things for I would say for uh, for artists and poets, it has things for rhetorical studies. As I said, um, it's just a very, very, very um, good and thorough study into the everything that has to do with uh, persuasion. Really, yes, I think uh, also it's important for uh, people to to situate. What, when and why Aristotle's rhetoric came about. <clears throat> I think uh, sometimes we, we think of Aristotle so closely with Athens that we are even tempted to think he was Athenian, but he wasn't. He had come from an area that was called Macedonia, and uh, Stagora was an area that he was born from, we think, we know a little bit, possibly his father was a doctor. Uh, and we know that Aristotle was, <clears throat> pardon me, for a time, uh, a tutor to Philip's son, Alexander, Alexander the Great. Uh, but Aristotle did uh, go to Athens, and he did study under Plato, some scholars, such as Warner Yeager believed that Aristotle remained in Plato's academy 
for as long as possibly 20 years that he entered when he was about 17 years old. But eventually he developed his own points of view, his own philosophies, and certainly his own view of rhetoric that was different than his teacher, Plato, and of course, Plato's teacher, Socrates. He did, however, see distinctions with some people who might think of Aristotle as a rival, such as the person we discussed in our last meeting, pardon me, and that was Isocrates. There are some comments early in the rhetoric that, pardon me, his, um, his differences with Isocrates led to the writing of the rhetoric, that he saw it as a corrective for Isocrates, which of course uh, is just a point of view because Isocrates' views, as we saw last time, were widely respected, in very popular and enduring. But Aristotle also made some very important contributions. The arguments are that one of the reasons he left Plato's Academy is, and there's a little quip here, is that he felt that the philosophy that Plato was developing and and presenting uh, was moving toward mathematics. There's even a little uh, story that there was a sign to that effect above the academy that don't enter here unless you you are a believer in geometry and mathematics, that sort of thing. Interesting. But Aristotle was always concerned with the human condition, what actually happens in people's lives, how they operate in society. And in terms of the rhetoric, his most important emphasis, and we know this because he himself says it at least on two different occasions in the rhetoric, is to help people understand and how to make good judgments. Hmm. How do you adjudicate the validity of views that are presented to resolve problems. What makes a good argument and what makes a bad argument? How can we understand how to create arguments? And the emphasis on creating arguments is called heuristics. we, We may have mentioned this before, but If you are a journalist, a very basic heuristic or way to create a point of view is to say who, what, when, where, and why. If you cover those points, you'll probably cover the story for your article that you're writing for a newspaper. Hmm. Well, that's a very simple heuristic, but Aristotle, but it illustrates the idea that Aristotle's views were to go into an understanding of the heuristics of what makes for um, good argument and persuasion. And uh, just to go back there a little bit, so it seems like where Plato was moving, <clears throat> uh, you, you see you see perhaps some, I don't know, some echoes of that in the, uh, uh, in some ways, obviously not quite, but uh, in the logical positivists that wanted to just, you know, throw away everything that couldn't be counted, right? Uh, yes. That everything that was not either empirical and could be counted uh, or that was not uh, analytical and could be uh, ideally almost like a logic that would be as airtight as mathematics. 
Yes, there was an effort, uh, especially among British thinkers, to try to look at language and ethics, especially, and to try to uh, to best understand language and ethics through positivism, which means that the only certainty are either expressed as tautologies, but really things that can be empirically verified. I mean, so it's, it's, Air is the, probably the most prominent example, and and his early work called Logic in the Study of Language, I believe it is, mm. of ethics, and um, was an effort to do that. That view was uh, argued and found to be uh, unacceptable that there are too many other conditions that that the position of logical positivism simply cannot understand or explain. And so the uh, whether or not they would agree with it themselves, but then uh, you could say Aristotelian uh, Aristotle would be a bit more of the godfather to the. <coughs> although he also yes. did do natural sciences, but he would also be more of the godfather of uh, the social sciences and see that as valid points of study. Uh, and we're moving into rhetoric. Also, the mixture between the and the poetics would be also humanities slash social scientists sciences. Yes, and I think um, we would see that. Um, Aristotle recognized that Isocrates did also have a concern for rhetoric and its social impact. Mm. I think his teacher Plato, who I would not call a logical positivist, but nonetheless believed that the study of ontology of essences and etiology, ultimate causes, was the root. But as we see with Plato, just to digress for a second, that when he started his his heuristics, he would start off the dialectic, which he thought was the engine to try to arrive at certainty, would start off by asking the people who participated in the dialectic, uh, isn't it something that we all would agree on? And then he would say X, Y, or Z. Mm. So there is a social interaction, but yet it's only a consensus to explore what actually is, which is independent of people. Aristotle thought differently. It is the people who make the judgment. Right. It is not arriving at a truth dissociated from personal perspective or preference, but rather the essence of something is, is not, to be quested after independent of social interaction, but rather uh, a judgment made by the people who hear the argument. Right. And so, and that's uh, where he found rhetoric to be the counterpart of dialectic, right? Where he says, look, dialectics is also a kind of more general skill. I just, uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps you can just read the the beginning as uh, translated by uh, by uh, on mine George Kennedy. The class, mm-hmm. the, is he a classicist or a rhetorician? What would you say, Kennedy? I think he's in both. I think he is. He is training is in classics, but what makes Kennedy such a wonderful contributor to our discipline is that he's thoroughly knowledgeable of rhetoric. We earlier we had some occasions 
were philologists would translate works of rhetoric, but they themselves also didn't exhibit any thorough knowledge of the history of rhetoric or rhetorical theory. Right. And That's so they, not to they say would, they, they didn't. Would, they would they, miss some of the nuances. It wasn't their primary emphasis. Right. And so uh, he says, at the beginning, it's really a defense of the study of rhetoric and why that is a valid, valid study, right? Mm-hmm. He yes. says, uh, rhetoric is an antistrophos, which has been translated as sometimes as the, a counterpart to dialectic. For both are concerned with such things as are, to a certain extent, within the knowledge of all people. Everybody knows how to argue to a certain extent, right? And belong to no separately defined science. A result is that all people in some way share in both. For all up to a point try it both to test and uphold an argument, as in dialectic, and to defend themselves and attack others, as in rhetoric. Now among the general public, some do these things at random, others through an ability acquired by habit, but since both ways are possible, it is clear that it would also be possible to do the same thing by following a path. And if it is possible to observe the cause why some succeed by habit and others accidentally, and all would at once agree that such observation is the activity of an art, a techne. Right. So right from the start there, he attacks uh, Plato's argumentation in Gorgias, where he says, where Plato attacks each of these ones and says like, okay, well, what is the art of rhetoric, right? And then he kind of, every time they say like, well, it's kind of like, well, well, but that's, that belongs to this other art. This belongs to this other art and, and attacks rhetoric for lacking a category, a place that it be- belongs to. Uh, but Aristotle says, well, dialectic is the same. It's, it doesn't belong to a specific category. It's a general art that is used by everyone. Um, it is, uh, and uh, there, but there is a way of observing what works and what doesn't work. Um, and by observing it, you can in- improve on your performance. And that observation is the basis for a study of an art or, or a science, you could say. Yes, I think that um, when Aristotle makes this argument, uh, we begin to see right from the start his perspective, and that is that argument should make sense, and this is the phrase that is often used in law, to any normal, rational person. It doesn't require a special expertise, although... We could say there are disciplines that have their own rhetorics. We could say there's a rhetoric of science, that they have their own way of thinking. They, uh, biologists tend to think in terms of genus, species, and that category. Right. But, for, but for practical civic affairs, we make arguments to, that make sense to people. Now, the other point that I think you mentioned is this concept of antistrophos. How do we translate that? We could think of it, as we say, and and rightly so, as a counterpart to dialectic. So, yes, Aristotle is saying, just as dialectic has its own methods, so also does rhetoric. Rhetoric isn't bad philosophy. Rhetoric is a different way of thinking, but it is a parallel, a complement, an antistrophos to dialectic. And this term... Antistrophos actually comes from a term that was done in Greek chorus singing and dance where there is a strophos, a movement, and then there is an antistrophos, a kind of a counter movement. 
if you think of two people dancing together as a waltz, mm. it looks as if it's all one and the same, but the movement that one the, partner the is making does and the man does and then together is actually different. And and if you go through Aristotle's rhetoric and you remember this concept that you presented throughout, he develops this. He develops this parallel. Some scholars have thought, well, what would happen if he had said, and we don't have to talk about this now, but what would happen if he had said that rhetoric is the is the antistrophos, the counterpart of poetics, as we thought in from the very beginning of uh, of our of our podcast today, then would it have been different mm. than saying it was the counterpart of dialectic? Well, here Aristotle, for the most part, is talking about the rational procedures. Although one of the distinctions that is different than dialectic is he recognizes the saliency and power of emotion. Mm, exactly. For Plato, emotions got in the way. Right. They were a constraint. They were an obstacle. And he spends dialogues talking about this. Probably his Plato's dialogue to Phaedrus is the best example of that point. But Aristotle, unlike Plato, assimilates emotion, mm. what we might call non-rational but powerful forces that shape persuasion within the rhetoric. And and legitimizes it too, right? It says like, yes. Uh, there's there's one thing of okay, you don't want to make a uh, what is it, it talks about that uh, um, you wouldn't want to kind of abuse emotions to make a uh, straight measure crooked, right? But the the thing is in 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 Greeks Greece they did have crooked measures to measure. Um, to measure uh, certain parts of buildings that are supposed to be not straight, but rather oval shaped or or uh, or circle shaped, um, and so it's it's more about the appropriateness of the emotion for the type of judgment that they're trying to bring forth. Yes, I mean we would say, for example, that uh, the parents of children have a natural emotion to protect their children and to try to do uh, good things for them, things that will be helpful and productive. Mm. And uh, we have emotions with, to give, donate money to charities, to causes that will help relieve sufferings. These aren't bad things. We want to make good judgments. We want to say, well, I wish I had an infinite amount of money to help every cause, but I don't, so which ones are the best ones for me to donate to. And that is, of course, subject to personal interpretation, but I can make good arguments of why I want to give to this cause now as opposed to this other cause later. Mm. And Aristotle provides a theory, the rhetoric, to try and explain and develop how we can do those kinds of uh, judgments uh, just by our uh, way of also by of um, uh, curi- or not curiosity but interest the uh, in the uh, rhetoric ad herenium it talks about the different stylistic flourishes uh, they talk about he talks about um, 
Epanaphora uh, being kind of repeating the first word in a sentence in many different ways. So we shall fight them on beaches, we shall fight them on the landing grounds, we shall fight them, and so on. Um, and antistrophe, antistrophos, or antistrophe is repeating the last word uh, over again. We need the best, we deserve the best, and we will get the best, right? That's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's, uh, that's the, the artistic flourish. Yes, and we could see, like, from examples such as you've given, how Winston Churchill could link ideas so that they are related for listeners. And he can do that stylistically, and Aristotle recognizes the power of style in making those associations. And he discusses that principally in the third book of his rhetoric. Is that the same use of uh, antistrophe or antistrophos? Uh well, I think early on he was just setting up how should we view rhetoric as a discrete technique or right. art. And he tries to show that both uh, philosophy and rhetoric are activities, right. just like economics is an activity. You do economics. Mm. And science, you observe phusis or nature. You observe, here's what happens Here's how the coronavirus works. Right. Here's how we can uh, try to remove it. But rhetoric is an activity. We engage in this, and how can we do it well? Now, I want to mention just briefly that Aristotle's rhetoric isn't, that treatise isn't the only work that he did on the study of rhetoric. But I think these other ones are best understood as helping to, to create the work that we now have. Because although some of these earlier works, at least one of them, did survive even into the Roman times, uh, for, all, for now they're lost, except on some occasions for a few references and fragments. But there was a work, and I'll just mention these, called the Gorillas, and early on, it was just uh, another view supporting Plato's. He was a young student. He, he uh, condemned rhetoric uh, in the way Plato did, but then just as Plato came to realize and change his own views about the importance of rhetoric, so also did Aristotle in his later works. His other work, which would have been a tremendous contribution, is called Synagogue Technon, which is a collection of the early manuals of rhetoric that preceded his own work. And this is very typical of Aristotle, especially his interest in biology, where he would collect examples of different species or things, and then try to say, what are the essential features that warrant it, this species being classified with others? Mm. So he looks at all of these rhetorics, these manuals, and then he tries to understand the essential features. He wrote a Theodekia a work named Theodekia, and that seems to be uh, an evolution leading toward the rhetoric. It's beginning to show that he uh, recognizes what rhetoric is. And just as a side note, there are tremendous scholars of the 20th century who did the same thing. Henry W. Johnstone Jr., who was a philosopher, um, began to uh, his career by 
arguing against rhetoric and then realizing that rhetorical argument was the essence of how philosophers debated among themselves. Um, we can see that Heim Perlman, the great Belgian philosopher, uh, saw that argument was a very powerful way of looking at, so, at social argumentation and became a very strong proponent and that's evident in his book, The New Rhetoric, a treatise on argumentation that he wrote with Lucy Ulbricht's Titeca in the a little bit after the middle of the 20th century. Just to so just, are, just to point out uh, just to point out yeah. that one again. Actually, I remember reading about him that um, he was trained in analytic philosophy, and again, something that uh, traces you know, a kind of mathematic philosophy, a kind of uh, logic that is so ironclad that you can't, you know, that that uh, it's it purports to be objective. Um, yes. And then he tried during World War II while he was working uh, with the Jewish underground to try to save uh, Jews that were being taken to, uh, to concentration camps. Yeah. Um, he was a hero. Uh, but uh, while he was doing that he was also working on this uh, treatise on justice and he was very disillusioned when he found out that his analytic philosophy could say nothing about justice uh, yes. and according to that framework the nazis were as just as as the resistance to the nazis was um, and that's when he one of the time when he said that he felt he needed another framework that includes subjectivity and uh, human feeling and uh, humanity. Yes, I, you know, I think Perlman is worthy of a whole podcast unto himself, but he has a strong tie with Aristotle. He His work, uh, underground work against the Nazis in Belgium, uh, was so lauded that he was actually knighted. Uh, and his work it showed that we can have a way to make good judgments in social interaction and he drew back from classical rhetoric in fact one of the exercises that i give students is that if you look at his treatise with lucy obrex titeca that is approximately 550 pages more or less and i said just grab the book in your hands and flip through the pages and stop anywhere, anywhere you want. And then I would say that either on those two pages that you're looking at or the two pages before or the two pages after, if you look at the footnotes, you will see some reference of classical rhetoric. Hmm. This is how powerful. And of course the dominant theory is Aristotle's rhetoric because Aristotle like Perlman and Ulbricht's Titeca deals with argument. So I think we can look at uh, the rhetoric now and see what is it that makes this so powerful? What is it that uh, has attracted not only scholars, but been so beneficial that it's sustained? Mm. Because I think one of the things that we can remember is that we can appreciate ideas from antiquity, but they'll be seen that way unless we realize that that there are many, and here's a great example, that can help us today, that they still have much, much to offer. I don't think there's anyone who can read through the rhetoric carefully 
and consider carefully what is said and not have their minds expanded. Mm. I think it's just that powerful. So we can, uh, if, if you wish to go through, but I, I do want to mention too, and I can do this at some other point that there were great scholars who also recognized the value of rhetoric in the eight, in the 19th century, Leonard Spengel presented the rhetoric. His commentary was in Latin, not uncommon in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, E.M. Cope, Cope and Sands did a critical edition of Aristotle's rhetoric, and their comment and the commentary is absolutely excellent. You've mentioned um, George Kennedy's translation of Aristotle's rhetoric, which is very, very um, insightful because he is very knowledgeable of the history of rhetoric and rhetorical theory. Some people believe, <clears throat> I'm among them, that one of the greatest single scholarly contributions to understanding Aristotle's rhetoric is by the Jesuit priest, Father William M.A. Grimaldi, who in the middle of the 20th century did uh, a work called Studies in the Philosophy of Aristotle's Rhetoric, and then later did two commentaries, one on book one and other on book two, uh, on Aristotle's rhetoric. Sadly, he passed away of cancer and was unable to finish the third com his commentary on the third of the three books of Aristotle's rhetoric. But all that is to say is that those works are important. And in approximately 1998 or 99, former student of mine, Lois Agnew and I did a work called Landmark Essays on Aristotle's Rhetoric, where we include not only the works of Father Grimaldi, but also great scholars on Aristotle's Rhetoric. And so if there are listeners who would like to see those, the, there are references that I would, I would recommend. I think that in my own personal perspective, uh, I was so taken by Aristotle that on the title of, of a book I did on ancient rhetoric, I entitled it Greek Rhetoric Before Aristotle, because I saw Aristotle's work as a real pivotal point in the history of rhetoric. But then, obviously, I wanted people to know that prehistory. Mm. So if we want, we can go through some of the ideas that make Aristotle's rhetoric important. Yes. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> pardon. As an overview, I would say this. Aristotle's rhetoric... And it's argued that these are the lecture notes. There's one argument of students that were approved by Aristotle as his views on rhetoric, but others say, no, this is Aristotle's rhetoric. Uh, if you're looking for a later example, Hugh, Hugh Blair's lectures on rhetoric and Ballet were the approved lecture notes of Blair's lectures. So that, there's an argument for that, but I don't think it makes any difference. This is the work that Aristotle wrote. The three books that are presented in a general way have this point of view. The first one deals with understanding the argument itself. Book one, what goes on? And we'll come back to these. The features that make the second book, and this is really unique, this is very important, is that Aristotle presents an understanding of the audience. It's one of the earliest works I know of that takes into account 
not just the argument, but the, how the argument is received by listeners mm-hmm. or readers. And in that, he discusses the traits. Do arguments presented to older people carry the same impact as pe- arguments presented to younger people? We don't have to go far today because we know arguments about safety with such things as COVID-19 are powerful in one way to older people and less so to younger people. At least that's been the uh, point made in America. And uh, that influenced the uh, current election that was uh, that was held. Oh, the, the yes. result of it that oh, it uh, yes. that the you know the incumbent was uh, Trump was seen as. Uh, way too careless and not not careful enough for those who uh, older people who valued safety, and whereas they va- voted for him in, in great majorities in uh, 2016, uh, that make it made a lot of people turn away from him uh, in 2020. Yes, yeah, here's because, a good because because older people value safety more. Right, and uh, we and the criticisms that I have heard is that he did not provide a good example himself personally right when he got it yeah. of how to take you know of how to take this seriously and because of his lack of uh, at least apparent overt ambivalence or at least uh, dismissal of some of the warnings uh, not only led to his getting the virus itself but maybe even uh resulted in people not being as careful. These are the arguments that are presented, and they did have an impact, I think, in American voting. I mean, uh, if we can just take a little bit here, there's a a wonderful description, I think, of youth here in uh, Aristotle, where he's describing a young audience, um, where he says, in terms of their character, the young are prone to desires and inclined to do whatever they desire. (laughs) Of the desires of the body, they are most inclined to pursue that relating to sex, and they are powerless against this. They are changeable and fickle in desires, and though they intensely lust, they are quickly satisfied. For their wants, like the thirst and hunger of the sick, are sharp rather than massive. And they are impulsive and quick-tempered and inclined to follow up their anger by action. They are unable to resist their impulses, for through love of honor they cannot put up with being belittled, but become indignant if they think they are done wrong. And though they love honor, they love victory more, for youth longs for superiority and victory is a kind of superiority. They have both of these characteristics more than love of money or of the age groups. They are least lovers of money because they have not yet experienced want. As the saying of Pittacus about Amphiaris has it, and they are not cynical but guileless because of yet not, not yet having seen much wickedness, and they are trusting because of not yet having been much deceived. And they're filled with hopes. You know, we talk constantly about the hope of youth, right? And to a certain extent, perhaps the political radicalism of, of youth in the sense of their, their great uh, ambitions. For like those drinking wine, the youth are filled by their nature. And at the same time, they are filled with hopes because of not yet having experienced much failure. And they live for the most part in hope. For hope is for the future, and memory is what has gone by. But for the young, the future is long, and the past is short. For in the dawn of life, nothing can be remembered and everything can be hoped for. And I think that uh, people who hear this may nod their head yes. They may not agree with some things that Aristotle says, but we can appreciate what he is trying to do. He is trying to show 
that arguments that are received by the youth tend to be adjudicated differently than arguments that are received by older people, by people of experience, and that we need to be cognizant, we need to be aware of those differences when we present the argument. This is why sometimes I think we are dismayed when we give what we think are very strong arguments, and then to certain groups of people, they're just rejected. In fact, when even when we think, well, we're presenting things that are not subject to debate, such as facts and statistics and the death rate of, of people who have COVID-19, um, that would warrant a change, and then people do nothing. But this is something that Aristotle recognized happens. These are things that go on, you know, and, and the importance of not just introducing new beliefs, but the power of attitude. Attitude takes, is it possible to change attitudes? Is it possible to actually change attitudes? We are concerned in America because we think that African-Americans have been treated unjustly and that some Americans have fostered um, uh, attitudes that we don't agree with, that we think are bad. Mm -hmm. Can we change those attitudes? Well, Aristotle believed, yes, it is possible, not easy in some cases, to change your attitudes by making good arguments and to hopefully have that as a force. It's possible to do that. And uh, just an interesting thing that I thought uh, I'd mention here. <clears throat> they are fond of laughter and as a result, witty. For wit is cultured insolence. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, when, when we study rhetoric in the classroom, we often talk about such things as what is the force of sarcasm? What is the force of ridicule? Does that uh, have any way of uh, influencing people. Obviously, it wouldn't in philosophy, it would probably be criticized for any effort to do that. But it is a force in rhetoric, and it's undeniable. And again, Aristotle, rather than slap our wrists and say, don't do that, he says, well, people, I don't agree, agree but people do that. So how can we understand not only that, but how to overcome it mm -hmm. so that good re reasons do prevail? Exactly. <clears throat> and just uh, some of the uh, wonderful insights I've got just that are very relevant nowadays. I also feel like, for example, where he talks about um, why is it that people get angry and why is it that people don't get angry, right? Sometimes you feel like they should get angry, but they don't. And uh, he adds to it the uh, that people become angry when they are distressed for the person who is distressed desires something. If then someone directly opposes him in anything, for example, preventing his drinking when he is thirsty, and even if not directly, nevertheless seems to accomplish the same thing, and if someone works against him and does not cooperate with him and annoys him when so disposed, he becomes angry at these. So it's this longing for something and not getting it. Uh, those are irascible and easily stirred to anger. Uh, but there's also a power component there because there has to be the desire for something and also a certain sense of entitlement that I deserve to get it. Um, and that's why he talks about that 
uh, great is the wrath of the Seuss-born gods or Seuss-born kings, right? <laughs> yeah. That uh, that th- those who c- claimed they were born of Seuss or of that lineage, they were very easy to uh, to make angry, right? So there's there's a lot of people suffer a lot, but they don't feel angry because they don't feel that they have a right to anything else uh, because perhaps of class status, because of social status, and so on. Uh, and so anger comes first when you feel that you've been thwarted in 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 something that was rightfully yours to have. I think people, Aristotle recognized that people have a capacity and sometimes that, and he called this potential to do things, uh, dunamis, or it's where we get the word dynamite. You can have a stick of dynamite and it's just laying there. But if you, and use Aristotle's word, uh, energize it, energia, it can have great power. Now that power could be destructive, but if harnessed and directed the right way, it could also be very productive. It can do things. Often anger, um, where somebody will get angry and maybe uh, throw a, a drinking glass against the wall can be destructive. We say, you know, 10 minutes later, we say, why did I do that? But it is a power to do things. We recognize that there's a difference between uh, asking somebody to do something, uh, for them to agree in principle to do it, but then actually doing it. Are there, one of the things that happens in persuasion that distinguishes it, that makes it distinguishable from argument is that we can agree that something is good. But when, but some people would say one of the things that makes it persuasive is they actually do it. They actually, for example, quit smoking cigarettes. Right. Everyone has already heard the arguments of how terrible it is. We don't need to hear any more arguments about that. But obviously that hasn't been enough for some people to quit smoking. And the point others would make, well, that's just an addiction. That's, the, I mean, yes, they would like to, but they can't help themselves. Mm. Well, Aristotle talks about, you know, what happens when we have these strong feelings and tendencies, because obviously there are people who have been addicted to cigarette smoking that have stopped. Mm. They have overcome an addiction. Um, and uh, while I'm no medical expert and, you know, obviously we can have ways of helping people, he does try to see the tremendous forces at work and to see if it's possible that good arguments can contribute toward resolving problems. And could you say that, um, could we say that, um, in some ways, instead of just addressing itself to the most logical computational core that may be engaged in mathematics, although I think there's a lot of aesthetics and enjoyment in the mathematics also. Um, but uh, that he tries to address the whole person. It's more holistic in, in, in that sense, that it's, yeah. it addresses not just their, um, their, ra- their purest rationality, but also their, uh, that the audience at that time seems to be hungry that they have a desire for something uh, because of 
immediate because uh, of the body, because of uh, previous experiences, all things that are not necessarily disembodied, objective, universal criteria. Yes, there's one type of rhetoric that Aristotle discusses in his work called epideictic rhetoric. And this is a form, he says, where people are asked to remember, to recall, to re-energize values they agree on. So sometimes countries will have a day where they set aside to remember something important to their country and to their culture. And that is done to reinforce the values that that community sees as central to what they do. I guess we went a little bit away from the kind of the main structure here, but we talked about the the first one where he talks about the um, the rational uh, and the how arguments made in rhetoric are logical. They're just a bit easier on the eye or easier on the ear than the arguments made in uh, in dialectics. Uh, Then he moves on to talking about the audiences and the means of persuading them in, in different ways, talking about their emotions, their predilections. And the last part is kind of more on delivery arrangement and style. Style, right. He, you know, and um, some people argue that that third book on delivery arrangement and style was written much later than the first two. And uh, it's very different in, in, in style itself. Yes. And he does say that, you know, um, you know, I think theoretically, just like dialectic, you should just state your case and prove it. But because rhetoric is a social dynamic, we have to recognize that such things as delivery style arrangement are, they those things are a force in shaping judgment. And we must recognize that as part of the process. And so he, he does. So the first book is really to say that it is possible to have a methodology to create proofs. Obviously, we can have certain proofs, like, for example, if you watch the news on TV and um, a camera caught someone in the act of stealing in a store. I didn't create that proof. I didn't make it up. I didn't talk about it it being probable, it's there for everyone to see. It's not artistic in any way. Right. It is, in a sense, inartistic or atechnic. But Aristotle said, but it is possible to create proofs. And this is why probability is so powerful, because you can make an argument to say, here's why something was done. And then the audience adjudicates whether it is beyond reasonable doubt such as in a criminal case, it's just not, it's just beyond anything that would be reasonable by any other explanation. Or in a civil case, if it's the equivalent of like 51 versus 49%. So in America, uh, and some people will remember this, um, O.J. Simpson, while he was found not guilty in a criminal case, which has, of course, been disputed greatly, but that was the result, the verdict. But but he was convicted in a civil case. Right. And uh, Aristotle argues that what are the ways of proofs? Well, we can bring in proofs, such as 
the videotape that I mentioned or oaths or contracts. I can show that you signed this to agree to it. Um, I can bring in witness testimony. These are all inartistic. But Aristotle says, in addition, you can make arguments to sh based on probability that will be part of the persuasion, and that is the emphasis of book one. He says there's two ways of doing it. The enthymeme, which is the counterpart of dialectic it, with differences, because uh, it doesn't have to have arrive at certainty, and it doesn't have to start with universal agreement. All men are mortal. Aristotle is man, therefore Aristotle is mortal. You know? Right, and it goes and it go, follows, but it follows a process where the audience adjudicates this. Sometimes we hear these enthymemes. People will say, "Well, if you agree that this is true, then wouldn't this be the case?" And if this is the case, and this is called a divisive stages where you link arguments of right. probability together. The other heuristic that Aristotle says where you can create proofs is the example. You can use a paradigm and you can use that paradigm to either even illustrate what was done or to show that it's possible what will happen in the future. It's highly likely that this would happen. Right. And he, and he presents those, he says in there and in civic affairs, these occur in both a technic proofs you can use and proofs you can create technic or artistic proofs in three domains you can use them in ceremonial or social functions as i alluded to with epideictic mm -hmm. but they also apply in the law courts forensics and they also apply in deliberations such as a senate or a house of representatives or parliament and uh that is a kind of deliberative rhetoric where we need to hear arguments and uh, this is one where he actually talks about that. That's one of the main contributions of his book. He says that the other techne out, out there have almost only talk about what to do in the law court. It doesn't really talk about what to do in deliberative assemblies or in, in councils. Right. And he says, you know, if you think of these, especially the anthem, if you think of the anthony as a kind of syllogism, but a rhetorical one. In other words, that it's, persuasive and uh, and requires audience agreement. So I can give you the strongest argument, whether it's in um, parliament or it's in a law court. And if you just say, no, I disagree. And it fails. It fails because the source of judgment are the listeners, the auditors. Right kind of democratic rather than the rather than the than the test of logic uh, it's more like well does it actually does it actually work does it actually persuade um, and obviously some things will pers some people will not be persuaded by anything but is it likely to persuade a reasonable audience again right this kind of Universal right. audience, uh, what what Perlman talks about later, it's similar, right? That this this kind of um, structure of will people, most people, be able to agree to this? Yes, and that's why when we ask for agreement with people, we get into the book too, where he's talking about, I guess in our terms, we'd say the psychology of the audience. 
Right. How, what are you, when we were children, we used to, your mother would probably say, well, don't ask your father to do something before dinner. Wait till he's had dinner and has a chance to relax. Now, in logic, an argument should be a good argument, whether it's before dinner or after dinner. But your mother was very wise. She knew that your father might be more receptive to an argument after he's had a chance to eat and rest than before. The same, of course, would be true with the mother as well. But that's the point, is that that we need to understand the audience, their inclinations, their profiles, their dispositions. And also Aristotle does not only that in book two, but he talks about fallacies. Mm. Why is it that there are certain arguments that appear to be valid, but then when exposed, reveal their, uh, their error? And he says, like, a good argument, you would invite people to share in the process by which you arrived at a point of view. But in a, when you're trying to hoodwink someone, when you're trying to deceive them, the last thing you want to do is to reveal the technique that got them to agree. Mm-hmm. And so he says, our job is to reveal the techniques so that then you can make a judgment. So I think it's theoretically possible for someone to give a terrible, unethical argument and have it revealed and then the auditor would say, well, I completely think this is terrible, and but I do think that the cause is right. So in spite of everything that this person has done, in spite of their unethical approach and their efforts to deceive me, I'm going to agree, but for a whole other set of reasons. You know, I mean, that's possible, theoretically. That, but see, Aristotle would say, all right, but now you're making judgments that are based upon deliberation and thought and care and attention. Right. So that is a, is an important feature. So he does spend time. he also spends time talk and book two talking about the topoi. And that is how we are wired, how we are, how we think we tend to think in terms, for example, of causality. Mm-hmm. If you work hard, then you will, have a possibility to have a better life than if you did not. The result is you'll be able to save some money. You'll be able to provide for your family. Uh, You'll have, be able to make contributions to society. We also argue by associations. Sometimes your grandmother would say to you, uh, please do not hang out with bad people because people will think you are bad. Right. So you don't associate, or people will buy a certain beautiful car, like a, a Mercedes Benz or a BMW, because that's associated with people who are successful and um, recognized as such. Buying the car doesn't make you any of a better person, but it does put you in a category of association. So people join clubs and different things. To associate, so that is a powerful argument, and in book, and in Aristotle's rhetoric, those things are discussed. Mm-hmm. And of course, the final book is the power of style, which is how you express those ideas, how you express what you've discovered, how the proofs that you have created, and does arrangement make a difference? And he argues, of course it does. 
how you present shouldn't i guess we could say but it does how you present certain arguments right and the way you present them uh, makes a difference and so aristotle in his work on the rhetoric tries as we've tried to do in this overview should present um, an explanation of how people arrive at at judgments and how they can make uh, improvements to make good judgments about questions of value and preference. And there, there's, uh, as you can see, like there's a um, real civ- civic mission to this because uh, he does talk. It, it is, it is really about how to um, improve judgments. And if you read it together, I think with his uh, Nicomachean es- ethics um, and also his uh, his politics. Uh, he does talk about the, uh, you know, it, it connects back into, okay, well, how do you make arguments that bring forth better judgments? Yes. And I think that, um, I think that that is important. If you, if we remember our earlier discussions yeah. about Perlman, uh, many people believe that the victory of the allies in world war two was a vindication of the inherent superiority of democracy over uh, Nazi or fascist points of view. Right. And to that end, uh, Perlman was appointed as one person among others uh, by the United Nations to try to have an educational program where rhetoric could be taught and that countries would be democratic. And I, I just uh, would like to uh, uh, also mention there, one of the other people that was at that panel was Arne Ness, who was a philosopher from Norway. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, there were, and it was a tremendous effort to try to say, how can we help educate people so that they can make good judgments? And the arena for doing that, their <laughs> argument was, is democracy. Democracy allows, and in, in, fi- in fact, is has that as its nature, the uh, idea of having a voice from from people and determining questions of value and preference as a source of power. Um, in America, once every four years, as we recently saw, people vote on who they want to have as the president and vice president of the United States. And this is done so that power can be transferred peacefully and not without a violent takeover. Uh, Perlman argued the alternatives to rhetoric are not very good, which are, in fact, they're terrible, which is either war or violence on the one hand or complete apathy and ambivalence on the other. Right, and the the point is that people are supposed to make arguments with how well that works in a modern society. We're not quite sure, but uh, but based on debates, based on speeches that they give, based on their rhetoric uh, about why uh, the populace should choose the one or the other. Right, that's the right. And, and then t- the thing is, uh, obviously, you may look back and say, well, a lot of bad candidates were cho- chosen that way, uh, but. Uh, a lot of worst candidates were avoided that way. <laughs> you could also say, uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, we we've had Americans have been criticized that these presidential debates that we have aren't really debates at all, and we need to to really remember that it's good arguments that carry the day. I mean, those are 
but the the intent is to try to help listeners make a judgment. And I will say that Aristotle argued in the rhetoric. This is his point of view, and it's one I personally agree with, and probably why it's made such a personal impact on me. He he argues that truth has a natural superiority over falsehood. Right. That over over time, good arguments prevail. They win out. They may not win out initially in some cases. People can make bad judgments. There's no doubt about that. But he thinks over time, good arguments uh, sustain. As we say in America, they have a way of hanging around. Yes, uh, that's the uh, rhetorical equivalent of uh, uh, Martin Luther King's, uh, what did you say, Uh, conviction that the... uh, The uh, arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's that's a beautiful metaphor. And I think it's one that uh, Aristotle would have agreed with. I think the point is that their rhetoric, he said, is like a a surgeon's scalpel. It can save a life. It could kill somebody. Yes, it's it's essentially a knife. But it can also save a life. And it's how it's used that makes a difference. And in addition to that, I would highlight, as you said, he talks about rhetorical fallacies, right? That there are arguments that are not just logically invalid, but also are, um, yeah, at their basis, a lie, right? And that the, it is uh, it is not for a good rhetor to use these. Uh, someone who wants to be responsible as a rhetor. Yes, I think sometimes when people hear these arguments and then they discover that it is a fallacy, they'll say, well, you tricked me. You made me trust you and you, or you encouraged me to trust you and you made me think that this was a good argument. But now I discover that you did this, this, and this. And uh, I not only disagree with it, but I think lesser of you we're actually making the argument because Aristotle said that one of the real powerful forms of arguments is character is ethos that, you know, there is an element of trust that goes in and you can make arguments to emphasize that ethos. You can also inartistically call on someone's past reputation. Well, here's someone who has devoted her or his life toward the public good. And we should remember that. You know, sometimes uh, in America, if a juvenile commits a crime, we say, well, um, if they are follow the straight and narrow and do well, we'll uh, throw that out. If they were younger than, I'm making this 18, perhaps, you know, so we won't hold that against them. But it is a recognition of the power of ethos. When we go to a doctor, we go to a doctor because of her or his excellent reputation. Maybe we'd say, well, here's the best surgeon in the country on this procedure. So we make these preferences. Should we do a little just a summary of some of the uh, contributions that we have? And again, we have to do this with a little bit of a, um, uh, a uh, asterisk because we don't know how much of this was already present in Isocrates' rhetoric. Um, yeah, and, and Cicero yeah, does talk about that he cribbed a lot or took a lot from 
Isocrates and added a few things of his own. But uh, at least what we get from Aristotle that we have nowhere else before that or nowhere else in the same kind of detail before that, we have the enumeration, the ethos, pathos, logos described and uh, and uh, looked at all the different, uh, a lot of the different appeals of ethos appeals, logos appeals, and, and, and pathos appeals, and how those work in a practical setting. I think Aristotle does go into the depth that um, helps us understand how individuals look at things. Isocrates is famous and deserves to be famous for his more macroscopic view of how whole societies can benefit Mm. Aristotle more for the individual, but Aristotle's great contribution among others in the rhetoric is that ethos is a powerful force and you can create proofs that relate to character, uh, that emotions are a powerful force and you can create proofs and use proofs that uh, have emotions that help in the judgment. And then of course, that you can make good arguments Logos, not in the sense of logic in the terms of logical certainty in mathematics or positivism or any of those other things, but they make sense to normal, rational people. Mm. Uh, the Romans would take the word this of the Greek techni, and they would use their term, which is a ratio, a system to do it. It's, you know, so they have a ratio of rhetoric. And so from Aristotle, we get the uh, best description, perhaps, of ethos, pathos, and logos. Um, we also get the description and the enumeration and the um, study of deliberative, epideictic, and uh, judicial rhetoric. So the rhetoric of councils and, and, uh, and uh, deliberative bodies, the rhetoric of the law courts, uh, and other places where we use that kind of rhetoric and the rhetoric of their more ceremonial uh, that has more to do with the values that bind us together with reinforcing those values. Uh, I would say that inauguration addresses, and even though they're, they're, they're political, you'd, you'd say that they, uh, and acceptance speeches, we really are talking about an apodictic rhetoric, talking about what binds us together, right? Solidifying those values, appealing to those values. Yes, and, and I think the important thing to remember, as you've shown, David, is that these are all civic activities. These are things that operate when people are collective. You know, Aristotle argued um, that people are by nature social animals. And how do we adjudicate topics of disagreement that occur in society? And we will see that when we discuss Cicero and Quintilian, the importance of having a kind of a civic orientation toward rhetoric, which benefits which, uh, from the views of not only Isocrates, but also the views of Aristotle, because they deal not only with large social issues and movements, but how individuals adjudicate and make judgments about them. So we get these two contributions working in harmony. And then uh, there is, uh, the second book definitely is a huge um, audience reception 
uh, analysis, a huge uh, st- uh, psychology, psychology also uh, contribution, yeah. I would say, um, and really does talk about the the audience receiving these and why they receive certain things, why they feel certain ways, how to make them not feel that way, how to make them feel that way, if if the, if that's what's called for in the in the speech, the, as uh, some have pointed out, uh, it is not necessarily not unethical to make an a, a, a jury uh, adjudicating the murder case of an old woman to feel strong pity for the old woman uh, that was that was murdered. That's not uh, that's not inappropriate. That's completely appropriate. It's just making people feel what they should feel um, in the, in the face of an inhumane act. In America, we, in many places, we say that the punishment for a crime increases if, as to use in your example, the victim is a senior citizen. Right. It could be the same act, but if if it is done to a senior citizen, the punishment increases significantly. Because and that that is, of course, a question of value and preference that goes back. Right. And but people would say. Well, that makes sense. If it's done to a child or it's done to a senior citizen, they're essentially defenseless. And, or as you said, with children, they may be naive and can be hoodwinked and, uh, or an older person, they just don't have the physical capacity to resist. They would, if they could, they, they can't. And, uh, so all of these are, yes, they're questions of value and preference, but they're socially agreed upon in our hierarchy of values. And uh, would you say also perhaps um, Aristotle provided? I'm not quite sure if we would have a discipline without this. Uh, it uh, provided just um, a fundamental rebuttal of the Platonic or Plato's um, criticism or, or attack on rhetoric, um, and not by defending the most, uh, say, unscrupulous sophists, uh, but by showing what was the core of the art and why it belongs in a scientific academic study, why this belongs in a university, uh, which it's what it became to be after a while, right? Why this belongs in, why this belonged in uh, Aristotle's school and uh, belonged in, Philosophical schools many years after you had philosophical schools still still teaching rhetoric as part of the curriculum. Right, I think so. I think uh, Aristotle's argued that this was a discipline unto itself. It had its unique features. It wasn't a corruption of philosophy. It was a discipline that can contribute to a betterment of society, but it needs to be understood and seen that way seriously. Um, sometimes even today, well, people will say, well, that's mere rhetoric. Well, that reveals a misunderstanding of the nature of rhetoric and what it can contribute. And But, but fortunately, over time, I think that's being corrected. And I mean... I think we can survive some pejoratives, uh, you know, lawyers have <laughs> throughout history. <laughs> yes, I think, well, I think in, in some ways it's not a bad thing to be subject to criticism and review. Right. You know, we should, if we do contribute to society, 
we should be able to make those arguments convincingly at any time. And, uh, and other things that he does is because he, mu- he did, as we, you said earlier, do this review of all the techne that had been written by that by, up until that time. We have to assume that quite a lot of it, of that was here, that this is not all invented from ex nihilo by in the mind of Aristotle, right? right. Uh, that he did a work here, even though we don't have the the, tech, the one where he summarizes the techne and refers back to them. But what we have here probably is also a gathering of uh, at least 100 years of uh, rhetorical uh, tradition, uh, of yeah. rhetorical pedagogy tradition in, in Athens. I think if we look at the history of rhetoric, we can see that both before Aristotle and after, some of the greatest minds in the West, for example, it's true of other parts of the world, have studied rhetoric, have given it serious thought. And that's because the starting points of its potential benefits, I think, are recognized. And Aristotle, uh, I'm sure you're absolutely correct, stood on the shoulders of giants and tried to make his contribution to refine it, to uh, make uh, uh, benefits clearer to people. And I think that is a good way to to appreciate what he did. Doesn't it all minimize it? In fact, I think it's commendable. And so here we have the, we've had now an, a podcast on Isocrates, we've had one on Aristotle, um, and we'll see these two schools in some way and ways of thinking about rhetoric in dialogue uh, in uh, De Oratore, which we'll be discussing next time with Cicero, uh, where we're now in uh, over 250 years later, is it? Uh, or at least almost three, was at least 300, 300 years later. Um, and during this time, uh, obviously, uh, a lot has changed, uh, and the ones, the the, you could say the the Hellenes were the primary culture, uh, or the perhaps the most powerful culture during during that time, and and uh, shortly after, of course, too, with Alexander the Great and his generals uh, leading a lot of um, of uh, conquered territory in Egypt, in uh, in what is modern day Israel and Palestine, uh, in uh, in Turkey, but. You had the growing force of of the Romans, and the Romans then adopt gradually a lot of this um, of this uh, teaching from from Greece. And uh, Greece is seen as this university, this place where people go. And Cicero goes from Rome to Greece in order to learn more about rhetoric and the original thinkers on rhetoric. And in Rome, we see uh, the schools. Of Aristotle and the schools of Isocrates. I think we can see that um, Aristotle's student Alexander spread Hellenism, creating the Hellenistic age. And one of the great benefits of that spread was uh, in education and rhetoric was central. And Romans, I think, recognized the benefits of of Greek education, where cities such as Athens, as you said, ceased to be strong political powers, but were the centers of education. We might say that in our own history, we there's certain 
places that we associate as kind of university schools. And you would go to study there to learn, right? You would, and, and that reputation was uh, done with Athens and Romans while they, they had a, a kind of a, I don't want to say love hate relationship, but they did recognize the benefits of Greek education and the benefits of rhetoric. They of course wanted to fashion their own Roman rhetoric. And that's what we'll look at when we study the works of Cicero and then later Quintilian. And we're talking about, so Cicero, let's see. So it's uh, about when was he born? So that's. uh... Well, uh, Cicero was born. I think approximately in 106 BC and he lived to about 44, 43 BC. Right. BC, excuse me. And so we can can see the, the spread between Aristotle who passed away at about 322 BC. So we're talking about at least 200 years, um, that have gone by and these systems have obviously devolved or not devolved, but they evolved these systems of education, but they've also remained uh, remarkably stable that the, it has the contributions of Isocrates and Aristotle have not been um, greatly, you could say superseded or uh, by other educators later. They, they maintain their place as kind of the, um, the fountains of eloquence out of which, uh, out of which uh, these schools during this time and Cic- of, of Cicero still sprang. And so um, Cicero starts as, just as a brief introduction, he starts as a, as a lawyer. Um, you have now, instead of in Athens where you had to defend yourself and could get someone to write your speech, you've moved to a bit more like the modern system where you have someone speaking on your behalf. A, a lawyer or a, an, a, an advocate. Um, and he was that and came from the middle classes, upper middle classes, and by simply by the power of his rhetoric was able to become the most, for a while, the most powerful man in the Roman Republic. I think uh, one of the points that we will discuss, as you said, is that Cicero helped to reveal that rhetoric the, the study and use of rhetoric uh, is a source of power in the Roman Republic. And, and, and it, uh, there, the other obvious sources of power were the uh, patrician heritage, tremendous wealth, military sagacity. But Cicero showed that another source of power is the power of rhetoric. And um, where audiences in the Senate, in the courts, in public approval at epideictic functions um, can be influenced. And uh, for with him, he he takes as, uh, when he takes a little bit of a break from public life, that's uh, when he writes a lot of his work where he looks back and the at the nature of eloquence and writes on the uh, on the orator or de oratore, which becomes another of the canons of rhetoric, where we will really say like this is one that is able to sum up hundreds of years of learning 
um, into a quite simple dialogue that he writes in the, interestingly enough, the Platonic style. I, I think we'll see that when we discuss Cicero, we'll see that many of his most important works of rhetoric, especially the ones that we have, were written after he himself said he retired from politics, where um, his um, his work in the law courts was dramatically cut back, but he reflects and tries to justify, I think very successfully, his uh, his position his his views that he's received over a career of experience in those areas, the courts and the Senate, and how uh, rhetoric plays a role in in those experiences. And uh, he re-enters, uh, just to say, uh, as a brief preview, but he re-enters public life later to try to rescue the uh, Roman Republic from what becomes... The dawn, uh, the dawn of the Roman Empire. Yes, and, and he is famous for that role, also for his. He does, at the end of his life, re-enter politics, but um, as you said, as a corrective in his mind to try to uh, to uh, correct what he thinks are problems that would be. Um, played out at the cost of the Roman Republic. So that's something to look forward to. Um, but uh, here we have now the contributions of Aristotle, the philosopher who wrote a book on rhetoric. Yes, yes. And I think it's uh, uh, fascinating to see how Romans took and uh, assimilated features of, er- of, of, of Isocrates' Aristotle and Plato too, into trying to fashion a rhetoric suitable and and needed for their own society. All right, thank you. Thank uh, you. I'll just uh, just mute if you just mute yourself there. I'll just play the, the jingle and uh, thank you for joining us for the rhetorical leadership podcast. Join us again for the next time to talk about Cicero, one of the greatest writers of rhetoric and performers of rhetoric that ever existed. Thank you.